0: Alright, if you have your Bible or a device, you'll be looking at our, our the text with us this morning. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, we began 1 Samuel just a couple weeks ago, um, working through this Old Testament book um, for a couple reasons. One, we want to to make sure you, you feel like you have access to all of Scripture, um, not just the New Testament. So we want to look at both the Old and the New. Um, we want to look at different genres of Scripture And so most recently, we were looking at Philippians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul directly to a church um, where 1 Samuel is more of a historical document. It is giving dates and times and places and and showing um, the transition for the people of Israel from being ruled by judges um, to ultimately going to be ruled by a king. Um, But it's not just a dry history looking to just give some some basic facts and names but it's it's a theological history that is revealing the the nature and the character of god it's 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 a story that is being driven and and maybe a question that we haven't um answered or or, or maybe we've assumed is so this this is written almost three thousand years ago it's covering dates in the 11th and 10th century bc i mean, if you're a history person this is like the early iron age period um so maybe the question would be why? Why would this particular book of 1 Samuel? Why would it matter to us some three thousand years later, right? Like why would the, the history of the Hebrews, right, Israel, the nation of Israel, why does it matter to us? And and so listen, we it, because it does, right? Israel was called um, as a nation by God. Um, he He tells us in Scripture. Right, that I didn't pick you because you had the the biggest army, because you were the mightiest or the strongest. It's actually because you were the fewest in number, right? He he picked a humble people. He starts with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, in Genesis 12, look, I'm going to build a nation from you. Like, your descendants are going to be a nation. And through them, the world is going to be blessed, right? That we are recipients of that blessing because jesus is going to come from the line of israel right like this is going to be his people that he is born into right when when the god man puts on human flesh and so we we come and we care because of this unique relationship and so he tells them listen our relationship israel and 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 god is going to reflect to the world god's character his nature his goodness And their response to them, right, is going to show what it looks like to walk faithfully with God. And when this is done, then the nations are going to be drawn to Israel to say, We want to know this God. We want to give worship and praise because He is worthy of it. And so we have this unique tension, right, because God is drawing people to Himself and He's using a a fallible, sinful people. And so we see this, this tension of God's glory that wants to spread throughout the world, right? That people know him, that they trust him, that they worship him, that they glorify him. His glory is looking to fill the earth. And yet his holiness, right? His is is separate and it's looking to pull away from that which is not holy. And we're not holy right apart from from Christ. And so we see these two things, these twin truths of his glory looking to fill the earth and his holiness, right, which is not around sin and they're they're held in this beautiful checked tension that god is orchestrating and working in the world and so he reveals his character and he makes a covenant with abraham right in this day and age right it, when a covenant was made the weaker party would walk through animals that had been sacrificed and split in half saying listen if you don't keep your end of the, the bargain of the covenant the stronger will do this to the weaker and yet it's god who passes through not, not saying that he is the weaker party, but saying you won't be able to keep the covenant I'm, keep, I'm, I'm creating. So I'm going to keep it. I'll keep my word. And I'm going to keep it on your behalf. For your, for your good and for, for God's glory. And so then we, we, we fast forward to Exodus, right? And we see God's people um, enslaved by the nation of Egypt. And they're crying out, God, don't forget your covenant. Don't forget your people. And God intervenes and he steps into human history, right? And he rescues this people out and he takes them through the wilderness. And he he ends up in Mount Sinai. And all along the way, he's doing incredible feats of revealing, I'm with you and I'm for you and I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide water in the desert. I'm going to provide protection from one of the world's great superpowers. I'm going to provide food that's just going to be there in the morning. I'm going to care for you. And he, he gets them to Mount Sinai and he right, reminds them of the covenant that he has made. And he, he cr- gives them the, the Ten Commandments after he's rescued them. He's brought them into relationship. And he says, so thus walk. And again, the point is, right? people are going to see my, my character and my nature, my mercy and my loving kindness. And they're going to be drawn to you because of me so that they can know me. Right, that this is this interaction between God and Israel, and so He tells them, "I want you to have um, ceremonies and holidays and remembrances, right, where you remember My nature and My character, where you remember specific things that I've done." And so it's why the Jews, right to this day, would celebrate the Passover, right, because God rescued His people. And they they eat the same meal and they, they repeat the same scripture and they're telling the same story, right? And, and it was meant to be like, listen, that was a vivid, terrifying, incredible night that was to be passed on from generation to generation to generation. But like most stories, family stories that were vivid for a generation or two or maybe several, right? They begin to be presumed upon. They begin to be assumed. they They begin to just kind of take on less and less significance and meaning if they're not being passed on well. If we begin to go through the motions. So we'll see in places like Isaiah and in Amos, God will begin to say things to His people, doing the worship right that that He's called them to, but they're only going through the motions. They're presuming and they're assuming, and He'll say things like, Your worship stinks. I hate it. Right? We shouldn't do it. I mean, these strong words and strong language of like, listen, this wasn't about just going through the motions, right? And then, right, like I'm not pavloving you, right? So that you'd go through the motions and I reward you with some, you know, with some reward. Um, And so I'll take care of you and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And it'll look like you love me. So now I want you to know me that I am enough, that I am like glorious and sufficient. I'm all that you need. And so the Old Testament is this incredible roller coaster of watching the people of God love and worship and cherish Him and then forget Him. And then things get difficult and they remember He's a rescuer and they cry out to Him and He rescues them and redeems them and frees them. And they're elevated once again. And then they begin to think it was because of their might and their strength. And it all comes crashing down again. And it's just this up and down roller coaster of do we trust God or not? Are we going through the motions or not? And it can look a lot like our own spiritual lives. And so where that brings us to First Samuel. <clears throat> and so we are in the time of the judges remember the book of judges ends with saying there was no king in these days and people just did whatever they wanted right it was a, a violent and and ruthless time there were still folks who were trusting and following and worshipping god appropriately but as a nation it was getting ugly we see this in in the first few chapters of first samuel that eli the priest and his sons are are going through the motions of sacrifice where they have created their own system where they profit. And that the people coming to worship are even like, Hey, well, I think God asked us to do something slightly different than what you're And, and they threaten them. They want to fight them. Right? And, and yet they've been set up as the, the priestly system. And so we have seen a, a prophecy against Eli, the priest and his family. That, that God's like, listen, you haven't honored me and, and you're going to pay so this, this brings us to this section, and we're going to pick up now in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. And as we we just understand why we care about Israel, right? And, and what God is doing in the roller coaster that we're on. And that He's now raised up a prophet, really the first prophet since Moses in Samuel. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, so that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the people went, sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Finus, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Right? So we're getting the history of this battle, and we're going to continue here in just a moment. But we're also getting just some of the, the nuance in the relationship of what was going on. Rather, right? they have gone out into battle, and Israel has been defeated. And, and the elders, right, they don't say, I can't believe the Philistines they beat us. They're like. God has defeated us, right? Like their, their theology is still good in the fact that they know God has told us he's for us, that he's going to go before us, that he's going to fight our battles. If we have lost today, it's because God has done that. He has chosen right for that to happen. And so they're confused and they're wondering why, right? They have some of the right knowledge, but they have assumed and presumed too much and have gone through the motions for too long. And the Philistines are going to play a key role. Um, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, they are a common foe, a common enemy of Israel. It's a people that's actually descended from the Egyptians. Right? That matters. They know these stories. They've heard this of how the God of the Hebrews routed Egypt. And they're a sea-bearing people. Um, somewhere roughly 100 years, maybe 150 years previous to this in the 12th century BC, they landed on the coast. And so they have been a coastal people. They've set up five city-states. And now Israel and, and, and the Philistines are just kind of moving towards each other, right? There's trade routes. They're, they're looking for security, for power. And they are they share a border. And so there's, there's skirmishes and there's difficulty and there's battle. And they're about 20 miles from Shiloh here where they're looking to fight and the people the elders say man you know what we need we got beat today you know what we need we need to go get the Ark of the Covenant right so the Ark of the Covenant some of you um, are thinking of um, hit movies from the 80's right Indiana Jones the Ark of the Covenant um, but the Ark of the Covenant was the the presence of God amongst the people Right, you can read about it in Exodus 25. It's one of those things that was created right after God has rescued them, after he's met them at Mount Sinai. And they've created this, um, this crate that has poles that run through it because we don't touch it because it's, it's the presence of God. And we don't touch it, and it's, it's carried on poles. And in it, they placed um, manna, right, or a member of the provision of God, like that God has provided for us what we need. And then in it, they also have provided, they they put the Ten Commandments in it, right? A reminder that God has made a covenant with us, that His law is the standard, right? That He has met with us, that we are His, and that He is ours. And on it, the the lid, the cover of it was called the mercy seat, right? And on the mercy seat was where God would sit, right? And and, and meet with the people, right? In this um, beautiful, symbolic way, right? That that was... And so the... The Ark of the Covenant was in the, the tabernacle, which was a traveling worship area. And this was basically to be envisioned as like his footstool. Right? Like it's a recreation almost of heaven. And they're trying to say, listen, God resides here. Now there's a separation, right? We can't go into it. It's the Holy of Holies. We can't go in, but God is with us and God is for us. Right? And, but there's this separation. And so the ark was the covenant. It was provision. It was presence. Um, And honestly, the people of Israel began to view it as a cheat code. Right? When the ark was brought forth, we win. Listen to a couple passages. The first is Numbers uh, chapter 10. This is uh, beginning in verse 33. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' of journey to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day, and whenever they set out from the camp, and whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of thousands of Israel. Right? So... So Moses is saying, listen, when it goes out, your enemies scatter. And when we're all together, Lord, you rest, you reside with us because you have chosen us as your people. Right? There was this intimate relationship. And so if we look in Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 25, we see this. Sorry, we're going to start with one of it. This is Leviticus. We're We're going to come to Deuteronomy in just a second. So Leviticus 26, verse 17. So it says, I will set my face. I switched them again. I'm sorry. I've got them both here. I'm going to read them now. All right. So Deuteronomy 28. Um, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way before them and flee seven ways before them. Right? So what we have, what we've seen is this, is that he promises that, listen, when you are walking in obedience to me, when you are pleasing me, right? When you are, when you are honoring me, when we are in the relationship that we're supposed to be, your enemies will be scattered before you. You will win. It's why the elders here in first Samuel four are shocked by what's going on. But what we'll see in in Leviticus 26, what we'll see in Deuteronomy 28 is this. He says, but when you are displeasing me, when you are not honoring me, when you are not walking with me, when you are not doing the things I've commanded of you, you will be routed. And you will know that it was at my hands that you were defeated. It's why here, right, the elders are like, okay, we lost. Philistines didn't beat us, God did. Okay, what do we do? Man, we should bring... The Ark of the Covenant here. That's what we're going to do. The Ark is the presence of God. It'll be a reminder to us and we'll rout them. Like we will destroy them. And you notice that when the Ark arrives in the camp, right? they're, They're camped some two miles apart. That there is such a roar amongst the thousands of Hebrews. That the Philistines hear it two miles away. It feels like the earth is shaking. And they're like, oh my word, what is going on? And then they hear that God is amongst the Hebrews, the, right? And they remember the stories so and they're like, this is the God who routed us in Egypt, who defeated us, who our ancestors were defeated by, right? And so they're like, okay, guys, like, we know what happened. If we're going to win today, man, we got to go out there and do this, or they will take us as slaves and they will rout us. Like, the, the Philistines had legitimate reason to fear. And they knew, right, they were going to have to fight. Like their their theology is actually good here, that they they respect the God of Israel. So let's pick up in verse 10 and see where the battle goes. I'm going to read verse 9 as we set the tone. So take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Super succinct and super discouraging, right? And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Finus died. Like in two verses, just an utter list of loss. And a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? The man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Finus, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Finus, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the Ark of God has been captured, and because of her father in law and her husband, and she said, The glory has departed for Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. What a horrific turn of events. Right, like you're just listening to it, can't can't get worse, right? And just it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. Right, you just see utter devastation you remember in chapter 2 because of the sin of eli and his sons a man of god shows up and god says to eli this in verse 30 i promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever but now the lord declares far be it from me for those who honor me i will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in it. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon you. When your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you, both of them will die on the same day. If you look at Hannah's prayer in, in chapter 2, verse 3, she is talking about the character and the goodness of the Lord. And she says that God weighs the actions of others. Right, we see judgment coming forth here. We see judgment on Israel. We see judgment specifically on the house of Eli. The priestly line is being wiped out here in his family. Told you that there's like some literary considerations here. The word glory means weight, right? It means substance. And Eli had exchanged the glory of God, right? The weight of God, the substance of God, the gravity of God for his own belly. Right, as, as they are f- stealing meat from the sacrifices right they are getting fat and so it's the weight of Eli in his old age as he falls right the force right, causes him to die right that we're seeing you exchange the glory of God for your own glory and in it the weight of God killed you right like there's just this kind of literary um, beauty to this tragic story. What, what Samuel doesn't cover is, is that the Philistines kept coming, and they actually end up in Shiloh, which is 20 miles away, and they route it, right, where, the, where the, the worship center was. Listen to how the psalmist say this in Psalm 78, beginning in verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. They turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers, and they twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places, which means places of worship. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. And delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. Listen, he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, right? That it was delivered up into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He vented his wrath on his heritage. His people, fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. The priests fell by the sword, right? Eli's sons and their widows made no lamentation. His daughter-in-law was quiet. Then the Lord awoke us from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. Listen, like they get, they're destroyed here. We've got 34,000 people dead. Um, plus some, we have Shiloh routed. The Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant. They have captured um, what what Israel would say was their, their chief possession, the glory of God. And so I think there's an element here where we're just like, okay, what do we do with this? Like, uh... It it feels ugly and painful and difficult. We're like, I'm glad I wasn't there. And so Eli's grandson is named Ichabod. And Ichabod means where's the glory? Where's the glory? Right, his his daughter-in-law is asking the question. Like she names him that, saying because the glory has departed from Israel. Where's the glory? It's gone. But the question, church, that we need to ask this morning was whose glory was she talking about? Was she talking about God's glory or was she talking about Israel's glory? Because remember, at this point, they're not really honoring God. They're not really glorifying God as a nation. They are misusing, right? They are going through the motions of God. They're not, they're not handling it right. Listen, they have attempted to weaponize God by looking at the Ark of the Covenant. as like the, the cheat code. They walk in and now we win. Right? That like you can't listen, you can't use God. Right? They couldn't and neither can we. You don't get to use God for your means. Right? This is this is the same idea of like walking around going, "Hey, I carry God with me and when I need him, I say sick him and I open the cage." What a what a despicable way to view the creator of the universe, the holy one, our rescuer, right? All eternal. Like Glorified, justified, holy—that they are looking at Him. Maybe, maybe this would make sense. Think about being out to dinner. Think about the waiter. Um, Tim Chester talks about this, pastor in England. And he says the waiter isn't a part of your meal. The waiter is serving you your meal, and when you need them, like you call for them, right? Some people snap at them, right? Whistle at them—it's a little, little, little more rude, right? Um, but right, like they're not a part of your mill, but they they act in your mill. So when you want your bill, they bring it. When you need more water, they bring it. When you spill something, they clean it up. Israel is acting like God is their waiter. He's not a part of the the conversation. He's not a part of the mill. It's like, okay, God, we got some enemies over here. Take them out for us, and then they get routed because you don't get to weaponize God. You don't get to use God, and you don't get to misuse and go through the motions. Church, here's the thing. We see this today that people will misuse the name of Jesus for their agenda, for their purposes. Some people even use it almost like it's a spell. Like if I just say in the name of Jesus I get what I want, that things are gone and right like that it's not Jesus I want, it's the power I want, and so the name of Jesus will accomplish what I want and need. We see this in salvation that sometimes people will look back at a moment where they're like, well, I cried out Jesus, so he's mine, I, he saved me, I've got fire insurance, heaven is mine. Well, you don't look like you walk with Jesus or you follow Jesus or you obey Jesus. Well, but I did this thing back then. Like that's, like that's not salvation, that, that's more like witchcraft, right? That we think that we, because we have uttered an incantation that it has this like protective effect. The elders knew Right, that would if the presence of God was with them, they win. And so they assumed if we just bring the thing that is reflective of the, the, the presence of God that we win. But their their heart motivation didn't change. Right? Their behavior changed, but not their heart motivation. Listen, where did this chapter start? It says Samuel, who had the word of God, was on stage, and they don't ask Samuel. They don't say, what does the Lord want? What does the Lord have to say to us? They assume in their misuse of God and the sacrificial system, and the Ark of the Covenant, that they can just go through the motions and God will win and they'll have the glory that they want. Listen, we too can presume upon the gospel. We can assume that our children or our grandchildren or our neighbors or other people who live in West Texas... Just know the gospel because the gospel seems to be relatively prevalent. And we're just like, yeah, yeah, you know it, right? Like Jesus, cross, he's good. But we're not we're not sharing the fact that we are a rescued people. That we were the enemies of God who He then rescued and has brought into the family as sons and daughters. That we've been freed from our sin. We've been freed from the power, right? Against us we've been freed from the 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 clutches of the evil one and now we belong to him and we want to honor and bring glory to him And it's not about just knowing the right things and just going through the motions with some religious activity so that it looks like you do It's about actually knowing him Actually trusting him actually glorifying him So whose glory was lost in in first samuel 4 It's not god's glory It was israel's glory They're the ones who are ashamed and embarrassed and routed and defeated who have lost the ark. Listen, God's not going, oh man, I'm captured. I'm had. I've done been got. Right? You're going to see this next week as we keep going. God's glory is is not for us to hold on to. We can capture it. His glory is filling the earth. This is merely His footstool, and He is in control. So we have to ask the question, then, what, whose glory are we living for? Israel, at this point in history, was living for, the, for Israel's glory, not for God's. Are we living for our glory? God, You do things that make me look good. You do things right that bring me glory, that bring me fame, and I'll give You due diligence, right? I'll say, man, look at what God's done. Right? Like, whose glory? Is it ours? Is it America's? Is it is it the Christian right, right? That we just want to like kind of view and say, hey, all that's okay? Because what this passage is telling us is that we can mix nationalism and faith together and it doesn't please God. Right? That we have to find like what is God's glory actually calling us to do? What is he, what actually brings him glory, and is it just for our good? And we're using him to cover up our sin by saying, listen, we're doing it for God. We can't presume that we haven't mixed our glory and, and some other sin into our pursuit of God's glory. God had not been captured. Here's what's going on. We, we've we got to determine, are we giving God his rightful due because his rightful due is everything it's our life we don't give him an hour on Sunday mornings and say hope I hope I've appeased you maybe you'll throw me a little something something this week right we don't open our Bible and say okay God this is gonna be a good day right like we come to him because he is worthy who is at the center of your life right now is it you or is it him That's the question here. Who who gets the glory? Who's at it? He deserves all of our life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, like we offer our lives as a sacrifice of living worship. So listen. How we give glory to God is by trusting Him. It's by knowing Him and honoring Him and obeying Him and trusting Him. And so when He... Says, I want you to be generous then we're generous I want you to reflect my character then we reflect his character right when he pursues us we pursue those who are far from Jesus because we were once far from Jesus Right? It's the grace of God that we have. we know Him at all, that we've been rescued at all. And so we walk in obedience, not to be saved, but because we've been saved, we've been rescued. And now the grace of God propels us forward to reflect His image. And so this morning, listen, we can sing songs, right? But if your heart and mind and lips are not in agreement of the true things that you're singing in agreement, saying, God, you are these things and I'm glad you're these things and I need you to be these things. If you're simply mouthing words and going through the motions, then it's blasphemy. Because your heart is far from God, even though your outward action looks like it's near. So you are looking for your glory that people will think that you're holy and righteous and good. And you're not concerned about the glory of God. That's, that's what's going on here. Is that they are doing the religious things and they're not honoring God. So are we gonna do the religious things for God's glory or for our for our own? One of the most encouraging things in 1 Samuel 4 is this: God lets Israel take the loss, right? He lets them take the loss because the win wasn't that you have the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to know what you need is me. And if He had let them win in this moment, they just go away thinking we all we need is this box, and we can do our thing. And what God is telling them is it's not about the box; it's about me. Do you see me rightly? Do you have me? Do you trust me? Do you follow me? Which church means God is going to allow you to have some losses in life, so that you will see Him rightly. Right, He He will take things from your hands, even forcibly if necessary. Right, it's why we can say like suffering is is for our good, and nothing is wasted, because He's allowing us to put our eyes on Him, to affix them to Him, and to say, "You're all I need." That everything can come or go, but you're what I need. You're what I want. Because as Paul writes in Galatians 6, God is not mocked. And we don't get to put on church. We don't get to put on religion and then mock God. We honor Him. We pursue Him. We trust Him. We give Him all of our life. And so here's the thing. Every action you will take today will be one of two things. It will either be God-honoring and glorifying, or it will be sin. There is no gray, right? We're either trusting Him for our provision as we eat, right? Or we assume that we're good and we don't need Him, which is arrogant, right? And that doesn't... So listen, you can pray before your meal and still be arrogant, right? It's not about baptizing this. It's about is our heart attuned to God, does it trust him? Does it need him? Does it want him? Or is it really seeking something else, which is lesser? Listen, the story kind of has a big comma right here. Because right as people would have heard this, it said, okay, now what happens? Like the Philistines have the ark. It doesn't belong to them. They don't worship him. What's Israel going to do? What's God going to do? We'll pick that up next week. But the call for us this morning is this. Like, What do you need to repent repent of? (coughs) Where have you done things for your glory or had the right answers or the right words, but really your heart was far from Him? Like whose glory are you living for? And then would we give praise to the fact that the mercy seat Like Jesus has covered that for us, right? Like there's no tabernacle, there's no temple, there's no Ark of the Covenant now that we have to make sure we don't touch lest we die. Right? Like when the presence of God was near, but I was also removed from it, right? That's what Israel would have said. Like it's there, but I can't touch it. Instead, we have Jesus, y'all. Emmanuel. God with us. Like that he came in the flesh to know us, to, to rescue us, to call us. He's left us His Spirit within us. And it said the door to the throne room of God is wide open. You have access because I have bought it and paid for it and you're mine. You get to glorify God in your life and you get to have the holiness and the perfection of Jesus cover you so that you can be before God. We have much to celebrate in 1 Samuel 4 even as we are cautioned and challenged and warned. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, I'm gonna. I want this to, to 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 sit on us a little bit. If you need to have someone to talk to, there'll be some folks in the back of the room. If the spirit is working. It's fine. Like if you need to stand and sing with us, that's fine. If you need to sit, that's fine. Would we respond to how the spirit is leading and guiding and directing us this morning? Let's pray. Jesus. Um, I think often we like to separate ourselves from passages like this. That we assume that was a different age, a different time, a different thing, and it's it's far from us. And yet what we know about you is that your character is good and that you are holy. And so sin is an offense and affront to you far more than we can ever imagine. And yet you have made a way. You have rescued us and you have shown us your glory through our rescue God for those of us who know you would we celebrate that this morning God would we confess where we have taken it for granted where we have presumed upon it where we're simply religious but not God honoring God for those who don't know you God would you reveal that their religious leanings aren't sufficient that what is sufficient is the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus that that's what we need to make us right with you. That's what pleases you is trusting that that has occurred, and so it can make us better husbands because we've received grace, and thus we can show grace. It can make us better sons and daughters because we can be obedient to the authority that you've given us. It can make us more generous because you've been generous with us. It can make us more loving. On a greater pursuit because you have loved and pursued us first. So Father, would we rightly reflect you, not just in the words that we sing, but in the lives that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.